in the first century, letters were written on scrolls that were unrolled as they were read. Today we conclude our letters with a signature, but that wasn't the case in the ancient world. Imagine receiving a letter, a scroll, and having to unroll this lengthy scroll just to see who had signed it at the bottom. This is why in ancient times, letters were signed up front, at the top. And here we learn from verse 1 that this letter was written by Peter. Ever noticed how some people are given names that fit them perfectly? Ever notice this? Recently, I ran across a list of doctors whose names describe their profession. How about this one? Dr. Lana Kane. Or Dr. James D. Cure. It's a good name for a doctor. Or the optometrist named Dr. T.C. Moore. C. Moore. Or Seymour Kern. I thought that was interesting. How about these pediatricians, Dr. Kidd and Dr. Small? Or the podiatrists, Dr. Hopper and Dr. Toback? How about these names for surgeons? Real, real surgeons, Dr. Gutman. Oh, I got an appointment with Dr. Gutman today. Dr. Hacker? Or how about an appointment with Dr. Cutteroff? Going to see Dr. Cutteroff today. Or these doctors who entered family practice, Dr. Howard Hertz. That's not good. Dr. Michael Akey and Dr. Stasek. <laughs> That's not a good name for a doctor. Or what about this psychiatrist, Dr. John Looney? Going to Dr. Looney. The psychiatrist. Or here are three dermatologists with appropriate names. Dr. Whitehead, <laughs> Dr. Skinner, and my favorite, Dr. Cynthia Rash. How's that for a dermatologist? Finally, five different dentists. <laughs> and if you know how I felt about dentists, I, I take great pleasure in, in this. Dr. Pulley, Dr. Decay, Dr. Les Plaque. <laughs> Dr. Drool, <laughs> and last but not least, Dr. Daryl B. Payne. Yes, Daryl B. How's that for a list of appropriate names? But these names are in contrast to the name that appears in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 1. For this letter begins Peter, and the name Peter was one that just didn't seem to fit the person. The Greek word petros means rock. And yet this man, Peter, was more like shifting sand than a solid rock. Peter was impulsive. And he was inconsistent. And he was unstable. He was not very rock-like at all. Remember, Peter was the disciple who, in a flurry of faith, jumped out of the boat, and he walked on the water with Jesus. Give him credit. He was the only disciple daring enough and brave enough to venture out of the boat. But in typical Peter fashion, his flurry of faith was quickly drowned out by the storm. For he took his eyes off Jesus, and he fixated his focus on the wind and the waves. And as a result, 
old Peter, old Rocky, sunk like a rock. And this was Peter's life story. One moment, a miracle. The next moment, a blunder. Though the name Peter means rock, the man was more a shaky than he was a rocky. Names like Shifty or even Sandy would have been a better fit. And it's amazing that Jesus gave him this name, Peter. It was not his given name at birth. Jesus changed his name to Peter for a purpose. You see, when Peter was born, his parents named him Simon. Until Jesus renamed this man, he was known by his friends and his family and his fellow fishermen as Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. For two years, I coached a kid on my baseball team who also spelled his name S-I-M-O-N. But rather than Hebrew, this kid was Latin, of Latin origin. I think he was from Mexico. Thus, he pronounced his name Simon. Simon Estrada, one of my favorite all-time players. Simon was shy and he was timid. And the first year he played for me, he barely knew which end of the bat to hold in his hand. In fact, when a ball was hit his way, we were always a little worried. Everyone cringed. Simon stood as good a chance of taking the ball off the top of his head as he did catching it in his glove. And yet, despite his awkwardness, you could see some potential there in Simon. It was raw, and it was well below the surface, but there was some buried potential. At the beginning of his second year, on my team, I was determined to mine some of that buried potential. So when I handed out the jerseys that year, I assigned Simone number 14, the sacred number, my own old number. I told him that I didn't grant the cherished number 14 to just anyone. I had confidence though in Simone. I knew he would wear it well. And you wouldn't believe the progress that Simone made that season. By the end of that second year, he was hitting as well as any other player on the team. Simone had turned into a Sammy Sosa. And as I pondered Simone's improvement that season, I can't help but to believe that it had something to do with the number that he wore on his jersey. Not that the number 14 was anything special, but it was the coach's number. And I thought of Simon to assign it to him. And all of a sudden, someone in Simon's life believed that he could succeed. Someone cared about him. Someone was willing to work with him and take a chance on him. Someone was, was willing to trust him enough to give him a new number that would remind him of his potential. You see, I believe that a number or even a name can inspire the person who wears it. This is what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 16 when he assigned to Simon a new name. You see, Jesus and his disciples, they were enjoying a mini retreat, some R&R, at the northern outpost known as Caesarea Philippi. They were there under the mountains of Lebanon in the shadow of the 8,000 foot peak of Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi was a Greek city that was built over a pagan shrine to the god of Pan, the temple to Pan, and the city's other buildings were built out in front of this reddish cliff, a sheer rock face. 
Just below the cliff on the outskirts of the town were springs bubbling up out of the ground. These springs formed the headwaters of the Jordan River. Well, Jesus and his men, they were chilling next to the water. When he entered a conversation with them, he quizzed them on public opinion. Jesus asked them, he said, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they all had their ear to the ground, no doubt about it. They knew what the people were saying. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. And that's when Jesus asked them the million-dollar question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And that is the most vital question any man will answer. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus Christ? And it was Simon who stepped up to the plate and smacked it over the fence. He said, you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Simon aces the test. In fact, Jesus compliments his star student on the fact that he's been listening to God. He even says to Simon, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon, you've been getting some heavy revies. You've been getting some communiques from heaven. And yet later in this same passage, this same conversation, Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that the path he's on leads to the cross. And again, it's Simon who steps up to the plate boldly and confidently. This time, he even takes it on himself to rebuke Jesus. Here, Simon, son of Jonah, corrects the Son of God. He says, oh, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall, this shall not happen to you. You're not going to the cross, Lord. And that's when Jesus answers him, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, wow. Talk about bursting your bubble. Simon gets whittled down to size. Taken down a notch or two. He goes from revelation to devastation. He goes from the peak of experience to the pit of experience. And you know... This was the journey that Peter would take again and again in his life. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus was teaching his disciples the importance of serving one another. But when the master goes to wash Peter's feet, you remember he, he becomes adamant, Never, Lord, you'll not wash my feet. And that's when Jesus had to explain to him that if Peter refused this foot washing, he had no part with him. And suddenly Peter backtracks, he blurts out, well then wash me head to toe, then I'll just take a bath then. On that same night, Peter boasted that he would never betray his Lord. And yet before the rooster had crowed twice, he had denied Jesus three times. You see, someone pointed out Peter's modus operandi was ready, fire, aim. <laughs> he was always blurting out, he, he was good at mouthing commitment, but often he failed to count the cost of that commitment. Much of Peter's confidence was misplaced self-confidence. And as a result, Peter was always up and down. He was always hot and cold. He was as dependable as an Atlanta Braves closer, or a Ford Pinto, or a Toyota gas pedal, it seems. He was always on that journey 
from peak to pit or from pit to peak. Yet Jesus saw potential in this Simon. It was raw. And it was well below the surface, but it was there. And Jesus never gave up on his struggling disciple. You see, despite Simon's impulsiveness and inconsistency and his pride, Jesus looked deep inside this man and he saw God at work in his life. He saw a man under construction and he gave to Simon a prophetic new name. He called him Rocky. He called him Peter. See, the name Simon means to hear or to obey. But this was Simon's problem. At times he heard God clearly. He received revelations no less. Yet on other occasions what Jesus said to him sailed in one ear and right out the other. Simon's obedience vacillated and fluctuated. He was unsteady and unreliable. Spiritually speaking, he didn't know which end of the baseball bat to hold on to. One minute he was God's mouthpiece, the next minute he was Satan's stooge. Simon lived in a spiritual no man's land, you could say. He was always somewhere, just sort of hanging in spiritual limbo, somewhere between faithfulness and feebleness. And you know what? I think we've all been there with him, haven't we? Living in that zone between faithfulness and feebleness. Standing strong at times, then shrinking back at other times. Have you ever been there? Years ago, we used to take our middle school group to a retreat center on St. Simon's Island. And whenever I thought about that, I always chuckled because what a fitting name for the location of a middle school camp. For the real St. Simon acted a lot like he was in junior high. Simon Barjona was immature and unsettled and impulsive and shaky like a junior hire. He was as stable as sifting sand. And yet despite his wobbly character, even in the midst of one of his severest wobbles, Jesus changed this man's name to Petros, to Peter. Jesus said to his misguided disciple in Matthew 16, He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. The word Petros or Peter means a small stone. Hey, Jesus was the rock. Throughout the Old Testament, the most common idiom used for the Messiah was the rock. The psalmist cried out, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In another passage, Messiah is referred to as the chief cornerstone. In Daniel, Messiah was seen as the supernatural stone that strikes the kingdoms of man at the feet and they crumble before him. Oh yes, Simon was shifty and he was shaky, but Jesus gave him a new name. Jesus the rock gave Simon his number. He called his disciple Little Rock. Not Arkansas, but Little Rock. Peter. Jesus knew that by identifying with Simon and caring for Simon and believing in Simon, he could change a shifty into a rocky. Simon got a new name. For Jesus was forming in him a new nature. 
Perhaps you vacillate between hot and cold. Maybe you're on the journey from the peak to the pit or from the pit to the peak. Your life is full of spiritual ups and downs. At times you're capable of hearing revelations from God. At other times you're spewing out the venom of Satan. And yet like Peter, Jesus loves you. And he's put his spirit in you. And even though we're all Simons in a sense, Jesus has called us to be Peter. You see, the first word of this book teaches me a valuable lesson. Remember when Jesus changed this man's name from Simon to Peter. Remember the chronology. Get the chronology right or you'll miss a great encouragement. Jesus gave Peter his new name before Peter became Satan's accomplice and tried to steer Jesus away from the cross. His new name was given to him several months, maybe a year and a half or so, before he refused to humble up and wash some smelly feet. It was given to him before he got impulsive in the garden and chopped off Malchus's ear. He got his new name before he fled the garden and abandoned his Lord. He was given Jesus' number before he chose to follow him at a distance, before he stood by the fire as he denied that he even knew Jesus to a little girl. He got this new name before the rooster uttered that dreaded cock-a-doodle-doo. Check this out, my friends. While he was still a shifty Simon, Jesus loved this man, and he chose to call him by a new name. He said, Peter. I hope you understand the implications for us today. For this is the basis on which Jesus still deals with his followers. Jesus names us, and he treats us, and he views us. Not as we now are in our feeble state, but as we'll one day become. Jesus calls us his own. He gives us a new name. He refers to us as holy and righteous and perfect and blameless. He gives us his number, even when there's nothing in us to warrant his trust. This is mind-boggling grace. We call it amazing grace. Just like Peter, as you ride the roller coaster from pit to peak and back again, Jesus stays focused on your potential on the nature and power He's placed inside of you. Instead of shakiness and feebleness and inconsistencies, Jesus knows that you're leaning on the rock. At one moment, you might be a shifty, but Jesus knows you're going to become a rocky. He knows that in time, you're going to start hitting the ball. He knows that you'll be a vital member of His team. And that's why He has confidence That's why he gives you a new name. His confidence is not not in you per se. It's in the Spirit of God that dwells in you. See, it's not a trivial exercise here to look at this first word and pause to take heart because it teaches me grace. And it fills my heart with great hope. Simon's new name illustrates the Bible doctrine we call justification. Oh, it's a big word. But it describes how God treats Christians, justification. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, God chooses to treat the followers of Jesus as justified. Here's what that means. It means He treats us just as if I'd never sinned, even though I do. 
This is the lesson we're taught in this single word, Peter. Yes, he acted shifty. Yes, he acted shaky. Yes, he was feeble and flaky. But Jesus saw him as Peter, and he sees you as a little rock as well. Shifty Simon was transformed into a little rock by a big rock, Jesus. Go back with me to Matthew 16. There in verse 15, Jesus asks his disciples. They're there at Caesarea Philippi. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then Jesus adds, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, when we go to Israel, we always visit Caesarea Philippi. It's one of my favorite places to hang out. In fact, you can walk right up to where Jesus and his disciples camped out. You can walk right up to the campsite. There's Jesus' sleeping bag still left on the ground. You can even see a couple of the coat hangers that they used for the hot dogs and the marshmallows. Well, not really, but Jesus probably didn't have a sleeping bag and probably didn't use coat hangers. But I'm not so sure he didn't make a few s'mores. Hard not to do that. Anyway, you can visit the spring that bubbles up just outside the city. And when you look into that brook, you'll notice that it's full of pebbles, these little rocks. So here's the scene I want you to get in your mind. The city is built into this towering cliff. And just below it, there's a grove of silver poplars. And there's a little spring that flows out that's full of these little pebbles. They're all right there in the riverbed. Now here's what happened between Jesus and his disciples. And it's one of those incidents where you really had to be there to grasp the full implications. I hope through the pictures and all you can put yourself there. Here's what happened. Jesus grabbed one of these little pebbles from the brook. He held it up and he said to Simon, you are Petros. You're one of these little pebbles. You're a little rock. Petros is the masculine form of the word. But then Jesus turned and he pointed to this enormous towering cliff just over his head. And he said, but on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The word he uses here, rock, is a different word. It's the word petra. This is the feminine form. It refers to a mountain face or to a huge high cliff, to an El Capitan. Jesus wasn't promising to build the church on Petros, the little rock Peter. Oh, he's too shifty. No, the church is built on the Petra, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the big rock. At his very best, on his good day, Peter was still a little pebble. But Jesus was and always will be the massive, strong, towering rock on which we can build. Jesus is the rock of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Petra, the huge mountain. But he's making you and me into little pebbles. 
like Peter, Jesus is willing to work with us. He's making us chips off the old block. That's what he's doing. And this is what the letter that Peter writes, 1 Peter, is all about. Jesus is the rock. And we're little pebbles. But Jesus can still use us. He can help us reach our full potential. You know, sadly, Roman Catholicism misinterprets the rock on which the church is built as Peter himself. In that case, we're all sitting on a pretty flimsy foundation. They go on to assert that Peter was the first pope, and they trace papal authority back to Matthew 16 in this event here at Caesarea Philippi. I think before we assign such an exalted position to Peter, we really ought to consider Peter's own evaluation of Jesus' words. In chapter 2, he'll refer to all believers as living stones, or as Jesus calls them, little pebbles. And when we get to chapter 5, Peter addresses the elders not as their pope, but as a fellow elder. Peter knew he was just one of the guys. He probably wouldn't have minded if you called him Chip. His life had been changed by the big rock, Jesus. You see, Shifty Simon was transformed into a little rock by a big rock, Jesus Christ. Despite Simon's shakiness and flakiness, Jesus never gave up on this man. It's interesting, after his resurrection, one of the first people Jesus appeared to was Peter. And I love Mark's insight. At the empty tomb, when the angel appeared to the women, this is what he told them. He said, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Notice this. The message was for the disciples, but especially Peter. And Peter, he says. Jesus knew that Peter had fallen the hardest. At the end, it wasn't just a wobble. It was a total collapse. Peter had proved chicken before the rooster crowed. But God wanted Peter to know that there was still hope for him. And so he says, you tell the disciples, but you make sure you tell Peter. Later, Jesus will meet Peter on the beach, and he'll challenge him three times to feed my sheep. It's interesting, Peter denied the Lord three times. Now three times he's recommissioned. It was another example of Jesus' restoring grace in Peter's life. You know, we're going to get more into these truths as we go through the letter. But I believe three factors combined to transform Simon into Peter. Jot down these three, these three truths. First, he gained perspective at the cross. Perspective at the cross. He received a pardon from the risen Lord. And he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He received perspective at the cross, pardon from the Lord, and power of the Spirit. Perspective at Calvary, pardon at the resurrection, power at Pentecost. All three combined to transform Shifty into Rocky. You see, at the cross, Peter saw that God works through suffering. The Son of God had died a hideous death. And yet the Father had used his wounds in an unexpected manner. He had transformed utter defeat into wonderful victory. The world's greatest tragedy had become its ultimate triumph. And this is why we need to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. 
You know, God's blessings are so real and so abundant, we often fall into the trap of thinking that we're immune to hardship as Christians. You see, the cross teaches us otherwise. In the will of God, there is suffering, and there is pain, and there are tests. If this world hammered spikes into the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus, what makes us think that those who follow Him will be treated any better? You see, we're calling our series of messages through 1 Peter, It's Only a Test. And this is how Peter saw life. He saw it as a test of our faith. Peter was tested in his life. And he learned that to follow Jesus, you've got to embrace some suffering. And you've got to learn some lessons. To follow Jesus, you have to take up your cross. You have to endure hardship from the, for the glory that will rise from the ashes. You've got to endure the glory to get to the glory. It takes some manure for us to mature. You getting it? The cross is all about God turning tragedy into triumph. Transforming pain into pleasure. Transforming wounds into healing. And this is the perspective that changed Peter. The perspective he got from the cross changed Simon into Rocky. After the resurrection, Peter learned that God doesn't hold grudges. He received a pardon from the Lord. And oh boy, Jesus could have had a grudge. He could have held on to a grudge. He could have remained angry at Peter. Remember, Peter denied the Lord. Peter broke the heart of God. You know, there's a single line that speaks such volumes. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 61. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. But Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus is on trial now, even as he's, he's mingling. He's warming his hands by the fire when someone recognizes him as Jesus' disciple. When he's confronted, he barks back, Man, I don't know what you're saying. We're told immediately. The rooster crowed. And then the line I mentioned earlier. Luke writes, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I don't know how Peter saw him. Maybe it was through a crack in the door. Maybe it was across the courtyard. As soon as the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and he looked right at Peter. And what kind of look did Jesus give him? Was it a scolding look? Was it an I told you so kind of look? Was it a look of disappointment? I tell you, I believe it was the grimace of a broken heart. That's right. Peter broke the heart of God. In the same passage, Luke goes on to write, Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. So Peter went out and he wept bitterly. You know, there's a tradition that says Peter's eyes were black and flecked with red due to frequent weeping. He must have cried three inches in three days. During that long weekend between Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection, Peter's tears of remorse and repentance would have filled a milk jug. Oh yeah, Peter learned that Jesus forgives. That Jesus pardons sin. 
Peter learned that Jesus gives second chances and multiple chances. That Jesus stands up fallen saints. And this is the lesson that you and I need to embrace once and for all. For three days, Peter had wrestled with his guilt and his failure. He felt so condemned. How could Jesus possibly forgive him? It was a restless, sleepless weekend filled with pacing and tossing and turning. And yet when the living Lord appeared to Peter, the first words out of his mouth were, Peace to you, Peter. And Instantly, all his guilt vanished into thin air. And this is what you and I need today. You need to understand. You need to realize that there is nothing that you've done that Jesus won't and can't forgive. So many people walk around with a heavy burden on their shoulders. Walk around feeling condemned and put down that God would never love them or never use them. No, Jesus died on the cross with your sins in sight. Jesus took your evil on his shoulders and paid its penalty. And now the worst sin that you can commit, do you know what it is? You know the worst sin that you can commit? It's to grovel in your guilt and it's to fail to lay claim to the mercy he's shown you. What picks a man up from the ashes, what sets that man free from guilt, what puts his feet on solid ground again is the sweet grace and mercy that's given so freely by our living Lord Jesus. And after the resurrection, Peter received a pardon from his Lord. And then at Pentecost, oh, on Pentecost, on the Feast of Pentecost, Peter was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter learned the hard way that self-confidence leads to failure and to defeat. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, Peter experienced a rush of spiritual strength that he had never known before. He felt a power come upon him outside of himself. Now his strength was not his own. At the feast, the Holy Spirit came upon Peter in an empowering way. The fear that had caused him to deny Jesus days earlier was suddenly overwhelmed. The hatred he had felt toward the people who had killed Jesus now melted into love. Peter on that day stood up under the power of the Holy Spirit and he addressed the very same people who had called for Jesus to be crucified. And he pulled no punches that day. His message was bold and brave and it cut straight to the heart. They were responsible for their bloodthirsty actions, but through Jesus' blood, they could be saved, and they too could be forgiven. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter spoke, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And friends, this is the empowerment that we need. Not a course in how to build self-confidence or how to think positively, or how to boost our self-esteem. No, when will we realize the power we need is not within ourselves? How many failures does it take to get us to the end of our rope? How many times do we have to fall flat on our face or cower away or yield to that weakness until we realize that we've got to have the power of God in our lives? 
How much does it take to get us to the point where we put all of our trust in the power of God's Spirit? We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But I believe the same three change agents that transformed a Simon into a Peter are the catalysts that will revolutionize your life and my life. Perspective from the cross that God uses even suffering. Pardon from the Lord. Tell Peter that I've risen and I want to forgive him. Power from the Holy Spirit. Look outside of yourself for the power you need. Well, the letter of 1 Peter is all about perspective and pardon and power. And it's all summed up in this very first word, Peter. All that he wrote was a reflection of his life. You know, when I think of the little rock, Peter, it causes me to praise the big rock, Jesus. And the transformation that Jesus can bring to any person. You know, you could say, Simon became bolder because of the bolder in his life. And the same can happen in your life if you learn to lean on Jesus. I love the story, and I'll close with this. The story of the little boy who built elaborate sandcastles on the beach. One day, a bully came along. And kicked over his masterpiece. But the next day he was back at it. Building those sandcastles. But this time when the bullies arrived. To destroy his creation. They were in for a painful surprise. Because on this particular day. The little boy had built his sand sculptures. On top of sharp rocks. And hard stones. So when the bullies went to kick over those sandcastles. They hit the rocks underneath and bruised and bloodied up their toes and their feet. And those bullies went hobbling all the way home. And this is what happens when you and I build our lives on the solid rock, Jesus Christ. Granted, on the outside, we might not look like much. We might seem shifty and flimsy and fragile as well. Yet when the devil tries to bully us around... Or when the world comes to kick us in, it's in for a shock. For under the surface of our lives, we've built on the solid rock. The big rock is our strength. This is why the first word of 1 Peter captures my imagination. The writer of this letter introduces himself not as Simon, but he uses this new hopeful name that Jesus gave him. He says, Peter. And he spells his name P-E-T-E-R. But I think it could just as easily be spelled G-R-A-C-E.